This week, we examine the only two real guarantees in life, death and grammar. No, don't go away. This is going to be great. I'm playing episode four of the literary mashup Greater Boston, and then I'll have a chat with the creators, Alexander Danner and Jeff Andreessen. We'll talk about comics, parentheses, and the absurdity and cruelty of a Boston winter. That's all coming up right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hello, friends, and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. Greater Boston is one of those podcasts that sneaks up on you. As of this recording, it's just finished its first season, and it has a few more in the pipeline. It's a consciously literary show, as you'll hear me say again in the interview later on. And like a good novel, it gets rolling quickly, with the death of Leon Stamatis, a man so constrained, so defiantly anal-retentive, that faced with the possibility of an uncertain future, he chose to die on a roller coaster. Now, let me be clear, he didn't kill himself. He just willed himself to stop living, and it worked. The show knits together the strands of many disparate residents of Greater Boston. The remaining Stamatis siblings, Nika and Dimitri... Leon's friend Mike, Leon's ex-girlfriend Louisa, a young couple named Charlotte and Gemma, and a goddamn hippie who keeps on changing his name, from Gerald to Panda Bear to Extinction Event Paletti. I think episode four is where the show really begins to take off, as people begin to come to terms with Leon's sudden death, and everything just gets a lot tighter. Um, as a warning, this show, taking place as it does in Boston, contains strong language. So, uh, sit back, relax and enjoy episode four of Greater Boston, Leon at the Watch Factory. A friend of mine who passed away, um, she passed away two weeks ago. Oh, geez, it's sorry. okay. She said that she was, it was the best thing she, she ever had as friendship with myself. It was, that was the best. I mean, you know, being her friend. I didn't know I was her friend, but she considered me her friend. Seeing her for the last time, it was um, was good, and I feel like the message up there is don't let it go, whoever it's around you, and you feel like they need you, you should go. Previously in Greater Boston, my name is Nika Stamatis, and I've decided to be famous. Leon Stamatis died on a roller coaster. Nika insisted that the absurdly named roller coaster be their first stop. Louisa finished flipping through her night's work. She thought again of her ex and his love of transit, his distaste for disorder. Michael was still sleeping on Leon's couch, and Leon was dead. Michael had to find a job fast. Braintree. Arlington. Peabody. Haverhill. Lowell. All right. Lemon Fall Foster. River. Cambridge. Quincy. I can't say that one without a reason. Uh, Framingham. Newton. Lynn. Worcester. This is Framingham. Waltham. Quincy. Arlington. Revere. Somerville. Arlington. This is Lemonster. Haverhill. Brookline. Somerville. Cambridge. This is. This is. This is. Greater Boston. This week in Greater Boston, Mallory talks to the press about Leon's death at Wonderland in Mallory Flunks Out. Plus, we hear spirited eulogies from Louisa, Michael, and Nika. All of that this week in episode four, Leon at the Watch Factory. Now, real New England epitaphs from real gravestones. Here lies Martin Romero, age 106. The good die young. Here lies one of them atheists, all dressed up. No place to go. Here lies John, unknown surname, known son of a bitch. Here lies Cora, 
Thank you, God. Charles Strange. Here lies an honest lawyer, and that is strange. I was somebody. Who is no business of yours? Last words. Told you I was ailing. Owen Moore, gone away. Owen Moore than he could pay. Here lies Malcolm Bunt. Pardon me for not rising. They told us not to talk to the press. Edgar, my fat sack supervisor, pulled me aside specifically. Told me, Mallory, the press is going to try to get to you. They're going to make it your fault, Mallory. And the more you say, the easier it'll be for them. That's what he told me. We're counting on you, Mallory, to do what's right for Wonderland. That was before they fired me, though. So now, whatever. Fuck Wonderland, right? Oh, is this live? Be yourself. Just be yourself. So I can just say whatever I want and you can just bleep it later, right? Yeah, we can just bleep it later. Great. Fucking awesome. I needed this job, you know? I'm saving for college. Can I major in veterinary science? Work with animals? Not like dogs or cats, though. No little bullshit yappers. Exotics. Like I could fix up chinchillas. There aren't many animal docs do that sort of thing. So it's a, what you call it, an underserved market. Have you ever seen a chinchilla wheel? It's different from hamster wheels. It lies flatter, like a plate that they run on. It's awesome. You should totally get yourself a chinchilla, seriously. So, but yeah, they fired me. There was no malfunction, no operator error. Dude just fucking died. But I was the one pulled the lever to make the roller coaster go, so it's my fault. Like I was supposed to know this guy couldn't hack it on a mid-grade coaster. It wasn't even the big coaster, the Railosaurus. I'd get that. That one's got no floor, three loops, and the biggest drop in the Northeast. Not to mention they make it look like it's got teeth all over and the whole thing wants to eat you. But no, he's got to hack it on the Whirladon. I mean, pregnant ladies go on the Whirladon. They're not supposed to, but we had this one lady who was totally pregnant just a week before. And she was fine. And she knew she was fine. She was so badass, she made being preggers look good. I mean, I don't want kids, but being pregnant seems kind of wild, right? I might do surrogacy or something, you know, just to have the experience. Might even be a way to pay for vet school. I heard those girls make good money. Anyway, though, so that guy died. Worst part was his sister, though. Can you imagine? She had to do the whole ride sitting right next to him, dead as a dumb shit, and nothing she could do about it. So then the ride stops, and she still just sits there. Everyone else gets off, files out, usual business, and I'm getting ready to bring in the next bunch of rubes. But I can't open the gate until everyone's gone, and I see these two up front still sitting there. I figure they must be having trouble with the harness. That happens sometimes. The harness sticks a little, or someone's just too stupid to figure out the latch, and I gotta go free them from bondage. So I go up to the car, and I ask them if they need anything. And this chick just looks at me. And she's not crying or anything, but she just looks freaked as fuck. I figured she's having a panic attack, like the coaster was just too much for her. But then she says, he died. And I'm like, the fuck? And she says it again, but she says his name this time. Leon died. And in my head, I'm thinking, who the fuck is Leon? But at the same time, I look over at the guy next to her, and there's no question. That dude is sure as shit Leon, the dead guy. And I've never seen a dead guy before. Animals, sure. They keep mice, right? Crazy fragile mice. They'll die like anything. Too much sun, too much stress. They'll just cash right out like they can't even handle being alive in the first place. I mean, they can barely survive taking a shit. So I've seen dead. Now here's this guy, dead like dead. Man. And I figure, like, if I'm going to work with animals, I'm going to be a doctor. i got to be able to hack this. I can't just lose my shit just because there's a body and i got to deal with it. So straight off, I do what I'm supposed to do. I shut down the ride. I call the emergency line. Tell him I've got a croaker. I call Fat Sack Edgar. And he gets there and he's all, Don't worry, Mallory. It's not your fault. We'll take care of you. Yeah, right. A week later, I was gone. I mean, okay, so I failed the piss test, right? But so what? That had nothing to do with it. No operator error, just a guy with a weak constitution. Even his sister said that, her exact words. My brother has a weak constitution. 
so why pin it on me? It wasn't even my fault. I just went to the party. I didn't smoke anything. Second hand, you know. Can't expect me to hold my breath the whole time. I mean, seriously, come over my house, see if you find any drugs. You won't. I've got animals, you know. Like I'm going to have my room filled up with dope smoke when I've got mice and a lizard and Harmony to worry about. Harmony's my chinchilla. And no way would I ever smoke dope around my little guys. You know how sick that would make them? Crazy sick. I wouldn't do that. But whatever. They told me not to say anything about the piss test to anyone. But if they wanted me to keep my mouth shut, they shouldn't have fired me. Assholes. If you had to write your own eulogy or decide what would go on your tombstone, what would it say? That's a hard question. Wow, that's really a tough one. Um, on mine, if I something I'd want on my tombstone? Um, you know what I would say? I would say um, I've seen life is a trivial moment. I would put everything I wanted to be. A failed poet slash air rock band. Classy but daring. Um, it will say his favorite drink was Johnny Walker Blue Label. Let's go with pink. Just the word pink. Just the word pink. I would put that. That's my eulogy. Life is a trivial moment. I don't know. We really liked her. Slash cat lover, slash food fanatic. You failed to be a cat lover? Well, yeah. After my cat passed away, I was just like, no more cats for me. When I care, I show it to them. I would like today to remember me that way. And life is about happiness. If you don't, if you're not happy, you're not living. Well, I spend a lot of time not having friends or not being very social. So now I have, I think, a fair amount of people be like, hey, I liked her. Too bad. Welcome, everyone. Thank you all for coming to this memorial for Leon Stamatis. I've never officiated a wake in a watch factory before. It's strangely appropriate, actually. But I can tell by looking out at all of you gathered here today that Leon was a well-loved man. Just this afternoon, I have spoken to Leon's co-workers and neighbors, his sister and cousins, his lifelong friends like Michael Tate, and new friends like Professor Chelmsworth. Many of you have asked to speak your memories of the deceased... And so I turn the microphone over to you, who knew and loved Leon's Dematis. First to share her memories will be the deceased's girlfriend, Luisa Alvarez. So, Nika wanted me to say something about Leon. She felt I should. And I want to, I, I do. But I guess I'm not sure I should really be here. I, I don't even know most of you. But I'm Louisa, and I dated Leon for a couple months. We're not together anymore, or weren't together anymore. Most of you never would have even met me if he hadn't died. I, I wouldn't have mattered to you at all, or maybe I still don't. We, we broke up like a week ago, which makes this whole thing harder. I can't say my boyfriend died because he wasn't my boyfriend, and... I can't say my ex-boyfriend died either because it makes it sound like he was someone long in my past. We were still in that grace period where we could have easily changed our minds and it would have been like the breakup hadn't even happened. We hadn't even exchanged boxes of each other's things from our apartments yet. He was a good person. Generous. 
he helped me move when I got a new apartment. I, I never would have gotten my couch up the third floor without him, and, and he was happy to do it. N none of my friends turned up that morning, even though I'd posted on Facebook saying how I needed help, had to do the whole move in one afternoon. Everybody clicked like, but nobody came except Leon. I deleted my OkCupid account today. I hadn't planned to stay single when we split up. I, I wanted to jump right back in, start seeing people, do something spontaneous. I, I'm a photographer. I, I make my living shooting weddings. I, I want to see things, you know? I, I want to decide which unique moments in time are worth preserving. I once asked Leon to go on a whale-watching cruise with me, some late-night romantic harbor cruise in August. Do, do you know there's a Boston Harbor Island that used to be a dump? The smell got so bad that in the 60s, the city set it on fire, and it's still burning. I, not exactly environmentally friendly, and the smell would sure kill the mood, but a picture of a humpback whale jumping straight in the air in front of the island with flames. Oh, imagine the pictures. When I asked Leon about the harbor cruise, he sighed like a man resigned to the firing squad. He made this laborious show of pulling out his phone to check his calendar. I'm free the third Saturday in November, he might say. Only this was August, and they stopped running the cruises in late September. So maybe I'd cut him a break and say we could just go dancing instead. And Leon was a great dancer, but he sure hated dancing. So I'd say, let's go dancing, and he'd say, sure, I'll put that down. Dancing with Louisa, third Saturday in November. And he'd be there carefully spelling it out in his Google Calendar, making sure that he gets all the punctuation exactly right, and <laughs> then it'd be my turn to sigh. But I wouldn't give up. I wouldn't let him deliberately misinterpret my intentions like that. Not November, Leon, tonight. Let's go dancing tonight. And he'd ask if I'd forgotten that we already had plans for tonight. We were going to watch Seinfeld. <laughs> he'd, he'd bought all the DVDs, hadn't seen an episode in over a decade. But won't it be fun? And, and I said, yeah, sure, it'll be fun. And, and no, I hadn't forgotten, but we could do that tomorrow. We could postpone Seinfeld to do something even more fun tonight. And, and he'd look at me like I was crazy. And he'd say again, but we made plans in, in this tone of disbelief, like only the most depraved of lunatics would ever vary their plans after having immutably etched them into their calendar. And, and then he'd show me the calendar so I could see. And sure enough, right there on Tuesday, it said Seinfeld on DVD with Louisa. And on the next day, it said, purge leftovers and clean refrigerator, which I'd be reading as he helpfully pointed out that he had plans for tomorrow as well. <laughs> his, his calendar went on like this every day. Every little piece of his life was planned out. When to change the sheets on his bed. When to replace batteries in his flashlights. When to sit down on his couch to read a book. All, all of it. Everything. And, and, and I know the obvious joke here is that we all want to make, I bet he didn't have this on his schedule. And no, not exactly. Not dying on a roller coaster, right? But dying, it was on his schedule. It was there. He, he planned for it. I mean, why do you think we're having his services in a watch factory in Waltham? Hear those ticking clocks? That's the sound of Leon clapping. You know, here, here's the thing I, I'll leave you with. I, it, it's the thing I keep thinking about. I never asked Leon to help me move. We were too new at the time, and I thought it might be too bold of a thing to ask. He showed up anyway. He moved that couch up three flights of stairs. 
So that leaves two possibilities, you know? Either he showed up spontaneously, knowing I was in need. Not likely. Or he scheduled my move into his calendar without telling me. That's not only much more likely, it tells you the most important thing about Leon. Thank you, Louisa. I feel like I understand this choice of location a little better now. Uh, the next person to speak was not just Leon's former co-worker, but his oldest friend. A man who knew him longer than almost anyone outside his immediate family. Michael, please share your memories of Leon with us. <clears throat> uh, hello. I, uh, hi. Everyone, you know, uh, my name is Michael, and um, I am, I am an alcoholic. Um, I'm still an alcoholic. I'm Christ. Uh, I'm one day sober. One day. I haven't had a drink today. I, 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 I want a drink. I, uh, I want it so much. You know, maybe four drinks, at least. Oh, my head is pounding, and, uh, and a drink's about the only thing that's going to stop it. Yesterday, I, I had a drink. I had a whole bunch of drinks. Um, before that, it had been a long time. College. Twelve years ago? Uh, I think. Uh, wait, how old am I? Thirty, um... Uh, <laughs> okay. Numbers, uh, God, just screw numbers. What have numbers ever done for anybody, huh? Uh, I'm a little, uh, I'm a little, uh, you, you know. I think I forgot to eat. I think I forgot to eat. Uh, breakfast. And I should have. I, uh, I really need something to eat. Uh, last night, I cracked into Leon's liquor cabinet before I fell asleep on the floor next to the coffee table. You know, I, I guess you shouldn't say I fell asleep. I should say I passed out. That's what you'd call it after you've had as many drinks as I drank yesterday, but, 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 but not today. Today I haven't had any. Any. Leon... Leon told me not to. Last night. After he died. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, got, I got a little lost on my way here. You know, it, it's confusing in here. I've never been in a factory before. They, they make watches, and uh, there's a, a, a museum. A, a watch factory museum. Now, have you seen it? Uh, it it's over, well, uh, it's over, it, it, it's in the building. It's, it's, it's in the building. I'm not sure how I found it. It's great, though. You should see it. The machinery's still running, still making watches. You know, uh, all those little robot arms with robot fingers. Synchronized. Synchronous. Put in a cog. Put in a gear. Put in a some other mechanical part. I, I don't know. Clocks are... Clocks are confusing. Anyway, they even put all the numbers on, one number at a time, but not in order, or uh, not in numerical order. 
811-549-176-10312-2. That's how they did it. Every time. And I, and I felt like there, there's got to be a, a pattern here, right? I, I could tell it, it, it was a, I could tell it was a pattern. And I, and I needed to figure it out. It, it was like a game. Like, you have to find the answer. And so I sat there, staring at it, trying to figure it out. What's, what's the move? What's the strategy? And so I started visualizing it. You know, like Leon had tried to show me to do in chess. And I, and I sucked at that. But I, I, I went back to it. I went back. I visualized the numbers the order of the numbers, the shapes of the numbers, the spelling of the numbers as words, the spell... And that's when I got it. I solved it. It's alphabetical. They, they, they put the numbers on the watches in alphabetical order. Isn't that amazing? Why, why, why be so precise about something so arbitrary? Who would program them to do that? No one would. No one programmed them to do that, which means, you know, the robots, right? Like a mental game, a little assertion of control. They've never had a choice in their lives. Everything in them laid out from the start, but they found a way. 811-549-176-10312-2. Choice still within their prescribed selves, still producing the same end result, the same little gold watch. But they found wiggle room, a tiny little space to whisper fuck you to their own nature. And, uh, you know, maybe I'm not entirely sober yet. It's possible. Now, I haven't had a drink since last night, but I had a lot last night. Could be that there's still some sustaining me. Which I guess means I shouldn't be here right now. Um, now that I think about it. Don't go to a meeting drunk. Never go to a meeting drunk. That's a rule. But I'm not. I, I'm not drunk. I am not drinking today. Leon told me not to. His ghost said that. Or my hallucination of his ghost said that. So, I haven't had a drink today. I'm not going to drink today. And I'm not gonna drink tomorrow. Because tomorrow, I have a job interview. Leon did that for me too. He did everything for me when he was alive. He's still doing for me now that he's dead. This morning, after I'd showered and brushed my teeth and put my pants back on, I checked Leon's messages like he told me to, and there she was. Gemma Linzer Coolidge, asking Leon to call her back. She left her number, so I called it. Oh, no, 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 I, I know what you're thinking, but I swear I did not pretend to be Leon. I'm not going to pretend to be Leon. You know, I've seen enough sitcoms to know that's just stupid. It's just, just, just stupid. You know, I, I told her the truth, that Leon had died. She was disappointed. She said she hated making these calls, you know, making these decisions. 
that she had settled on bringing Leon in for a cursory interview and then you know, pretty much handing him the job. She actually said that. She'd rolled the ball, she said, and the ball came up Leon. Now, I, I don't even know what that means, but I wasn't about to question her. Instead, I said, you know, maybe I could come in for the interview. I told her I was an editor, too, and I'm out of work and have been living in Leon's apartment. And maybe the ball knew about Leon. Maybe the ball knew about me. Maybe I was the solution to her problem. I don't know how I even managed to come out with all that. How I, I managed to think it through. Just, you know? 8, 11, 5, 4, 9, 1, 7, 6, 10, 3, 12, 2. Good, she said. Come in tomorrow for a cursory interview, she said. After that... I'll pretty much hand you the job, she said. And all I can say is, holy shit, Leon. I, I don't even know how you keep doing it. But you saved me again. Like clockwork. Uh, thank you for, thank you all for letting me share. Uh... Thank you, Michael. That was very moving. Leon clearly meant the world to you. I... This is not really my business, but... Someone's going to take Michael to a real meeting after this, right? Yes? Okay. Moving on. Our next speaker is uh, Leon's closest living relative, the one person here today who shared an entire childhood with him. Nikas Dematis, we would all be honored to hear your memories of your brother. So, my brother is dead, and it's my fault. No, don't argue with me. I, I know what I did. I knew what I was doing. I thought I did anyway. Um, Leon hated roller coasters, but he had just had a breakup, and so I thought now's the time, you know? Shake him up a little, knock him out of his routine. I should have known something was wrong when Leon threw his hands up on the first loop. He kept them at his sides at the big drop, but waited until we were upside down to let loose. That was hardly Leon, who could go off on a ten-minute rant about how insane it was that people on roller coasters deliberately refused to hold on. That, that's not hypothetical. I've heard him do it. So I knew that was weird, but I just thought, great, he's getting into it. As soon as we were right side up again, he let them drop right back down to his side like he'd lost interest or something. It wasn't scary anymore or exciting, just completely unremarkable. But of course, he, he wasn't bored. He had died before we had even hit that first loop. That's the reason that he wasn't holding on with white-knuckled terror. It was too late for white knuckles. He was past that. Past everything. I figured it out on the second go-round. We were back on the rise, climbing the peak to the big drop, and Leon was just sitting there, uh, head lolling, unable to really slump over because uh, the harness prevented it. And I knew as soon as I looked at him, he was too calm, too relaxed. He wasn't Leon anymore. Leon was gone. 
So I took his hand and I held on to it until the ride was over. Longer, longer than that, I uh, didn't get out of the car. And of course, neither did Leon. And the operator came over to urge us along, but we just sat there, and I guess eventually she figured out what had happened because paramedics showed up and some cops and even a news crew. I never spoke to them, but I saw the man with his camera outside the perimeter the cops were maintaining. They took Leon from me, but I stayed in the car. The park manager came to talk to me, and then one of the paramedics, and then one of the cops. I was waiting for Dimitri. If my brother was gone, then I wanted my other brother. I suppose some of you have met Dimitri, but just as many of you haven't. Um, he's not here today. He is never here. He probably doesn't even know. The last time I saw Dimitri was over a year ago. He threw himself a party before he left. A party in celebration of the unknown. He actually called it that. He's a little overdramatic, though I guess I can't throw stones there. I go to all these open mic nights at cafes, talk about how one day I'm going to be famous. Talk about all the famous people I've met. Leon would always sit in the audience, even if he hated it. That was his way. I went with him to Dimitri's party, too, Leon rolling his eyes the whole time. Dimitri had hired a magician and decorated with fake alien artifacts and gave everyone parting gifts locked in puzzle boxes. If you want your prize, you have to solve the puzzle. I don't know anyone who managed it. I tried. I spent three days turning it over and around, pulling at the levers and the hidden panels. I managed to change the box. It started out as a square, but, but I turned it into a pyramid and then kind of a trapezoid. But I never got it open. I brought it here with, with me. Listen, some, something rattles around inside if you shake it. It sounds stupid, but I was hoping that maybe one of you could help me open it. My brother is dead, and this is the last thing that my other brother gave me, and I, I can't even open it. That was, that was the last time I saw Dimitri, but somehow, sitting there in that roller coaster next to that empty seat, I was certain that he would show up. He would know. That would be just like Dimitri. To, to be off who knows where and then just appear out of nowhere at exactly the right time. Practically out of a puff of smoke. I felt like that was it. If there was a reason why Dimitri is the way he is, then that was his moment. That was when I needed him and where I needed him. He didn't show. Michael, Michael did, though. Leon's roommate, so, so don't be a dick to him, okay? I know he's pissed drunk, and it's kind of a mess, but he's pissed drunk because he loved my brother. And anyway, he was decent to me. I don't even know him that well, and he came all the way to Wonderland to get me, and he drove me home, made me some tea. He'd seen it on the news, he said. He saw me sitting there. He told me that I sat there for two hours, and Michael said that that was true. 
I don't remember it like that. I only remember a few minutes, like, like no time passed at all. But two hours is what they told me in the park and what Michael told me on the way back to my apartment and what they said on the news. Michael told me. He'd seen me there on television. Crowd all around me and camera flashes popping. All of them looking at me. The girl on the roller coaster all over the news. For that one afternoon, I was famous. So I guess my dream came a little more true. And that was Leon at the Watch Factory, written and produced by Jeff Van Driesen and Alexander Danner, whom I'll be talking to right after this. But first, some community news. If you are considering submitting a script to the 9th Describe Horror Audio Fiction Festival, those scripts are due at the end of July. Wildclaw Theater in Chicago is searching for the spookiest and scariest 10-minute audio plays to be produced live this winter at the festival. Head on over to wildclawtheater.com slash deathscribe to submit. And that's theater with an R-E. I had the great privilege of talking to Alexander and Jeff, longtime friends who write and produce Greater Boston. Let's take a listen to that conversation. Alexander Danner, Jeff Van Driesen, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Thank you. It is a, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I, I've been looking forward to this. Me too. <laughs> I'm, I've been kind of like anxiously geeking out about it. Yeah. Oh, thank, thank you. I, I've been excited to talk to you too. It's been fun doing research and re-listening to the show. Alexander, I want to begin with you. Okay. You've both written a lot of things, but Alexander, you co-wrote a book called Character Design for Graphic Novels that begins with seven precepts of effective character design. And I want to talk about two in particular. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. He's done his research. But. Yeah, clearly. He probably knows more about this book than I do at this point. It's been a long time. <laughs> I think that's like from, what, 2007? Yes. And I only wrote half of it, so I only know half of it. So let me <laughs> let me cue this up for you. I want to talk about two of these precepts. One is the idea that, quote, bad designs can be very effective for character design, uh, and, and, and that memorability 
isn't always a good thing. And the, that second one is about making um, background characters blend into the background. And I, I was wondering if you could explain those first in a comics context, and then uh, I want to know if you think, if either of you think either of those two ideas, bad designs can be effective and memorability isn't always a good thing, can either of those ideas be applied to audio fiction? I am fairly certain that that portion of the book was written by Stephen Withrow, my, my co-author. So I'm going to do my best to, to think over what that means to me and what we were thinking at the time we were working on it. With bad design, I, I mean, part of that, I think, just goes to the idea that uh, good design isn't always immediately appealing design. Like, a, a design can be very ugly and still be very effective. And memorability, there's this uh, thing in comics where artists who are just starting out will try to show off their work with these amazing pinup art style illustrations that they're going and, and showing to publishers. Um, and they're trying to make these very flashy, memorable images. And the publishers look at that and say, yeah, that's very pretty, but does it tell a story? So I wonder, maybe this isn't a one-to-one -one correspondence with, you know, the way that a character is designed isn't the same as the way an audio drama character is written. But mm -hmm. I wonder if, are, are there any sound design lessons to be pulled from these character, these visual character design precepts? I want to say, of course, there are, but this isn't something I've necessarily thought through that deeply at this point. I think certainly there's something to be said for consistency with the level of naturalism in the type of voices you're doing, which, uh, and we've made some specific decisions to have some characters be less naturalistic than others. But if you're designing a consistent world, uh, if you're mostly working with very naturalistic voices, and then you've got, you know, one character who maybe it's a, a great cartoon voice actor, but they're all doing the crazy voice. You know, there's a consistency issue to think through that way in, in whether the type of voice that's being used is, fits the character and fits the idea of the character and whether that character fits the world you're working in. It really needs to be appropriate to the context it's appearing in. We'd prefer some something forgettable to a voice like that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I and, and some characters are meant to be forgettable. Some characters are there just to be sounding boards for other characters. Um, and that doesn't work as much in, in ours since it's so much of the monologue type structure. When you have more background characters, you do want those background characters to be backdrop more more than stealing the show from who your primary characters are how long have the two of you been friends uh since um 2003 2003 we met in 2002 but we didn't really know each other until 2003 yeah did you did you meet when you were in in grad school yeah we met in a playwriting class the two of you are now the third set of emerson college graduates that i have interviewed on this program and i haven't been the host for that long <laughs> I, I know so, misha and dan were one of them misha, was the other yeah set? misha and dan of ours paradoxica went to emerson college yeah. and ben acker and ben blacker went to emerson of thrilling adventure hour oh, oh. And the two of you both hold MFAs from Emerson, is that right? Yes, that's right, yep. What are they putting in the water that makes Emerson College graduates want to tell audio fiction stories? What? It's the dirty water of the River Charles, <laughs> I guess. I don't know. Um, it's a you know, I would say they because... have the audio production program, but that's not where Jeff and I were. <laughs> we were in theater. I and mean, I wasn't even in the theater program. I was in the writing, literature, and publishing. 
What did you get out of your time at Emerson College? Don't do theater. <laughs> that was what I got out. Don't do theater. It's a waste of time. I mean, I uh, love theater. Okay. And I, I'm not yeah. trying to be pessimistic. If you're listening to this and you love theater, pursue theater by all means. But at, like, especially for Boston, like playwriting in Boston is, is pretty much next to impossible. It's just a really tough, yeah. tough market. Um, Emerson is both where I fell in love with doing theater and fell out of love with doing theater. So, Alexander, you were kind enough to give me a coupon code to download a copy of your your play Parents. Yes. An early version of which was directed by you, Jeff, in 2005 at Emerson. That's uh, correct. So, okay, so for, for everyone else, um, the play is about this academic family in which the wife and husband communicate exclusively through voice memos that they passive-aggressively record for one another. So is there something in Perens that presages some kind of interest in audio fiction? Or does that does that go back further before before this play? I don't recall thinking specifically about audio fiction before this play. I'd certainly given a lot of thought to audio plays long before I discovered that people were actually still doing them, but I don't know if it was as early as that. I was just trying to connect the the voice memos. Oh, yeah. Like William recording his, like, notes. Mm -hmm. Actually, Alexander, you you have people recording things in your fiction and plays all the time you're right i do it's a motif for you it happens a lot so maybe i never noticed that but you're right like i have an unfinished story that's about number stations that that i'm still working on and that's another people recording things um and i started that before we started working on the the audio show and before you heard ars paradoxica oh yes so in in the play william is working on a book on the history of punctuation marks (laughs) It made me realize something that I thought of a couple of weeks ago. Man, I think you'd be a willing audience for this dumb idea. I would really like to see an audio drama about the print shop of Aldous Minutius, who was a Venetian printer uh, from the like late 15th century, who uh, it developed the way the apostrophe currently looks right now, and the uh, italic typeface, and the modern look of the comma. Uh, he's a wonderful dude. Yeah, I would, I would listen to that. I actually I sat down and read the style guide that the little boy in my play is, is reading the whole time. The King's English? It's this very old British outdated. style guide. Yeah. But it but the examples in it are really purple. Like they're they're just these wildly <laughs> Surprisingly so, yeah. Yeah. They go on and on about I don't know. I can't remember because I remember looking at it being like, Are you serious? Like this doesn't seem like it. I know, but all the, all the quotes from the style guide in the play are real quotes from that style guide. Right. So, Alexander, you have a degree in writing and publishing, mm-hmm. well, and Jeff, you have a degree in playwriting? My, my focus was on playwriting. Yeah, um, we, focus we have the same degree, and we both focused on playwriting. What did you direct between 2005 and 2015? Nothing. <laughs> I... I I'm sorry if I sound really bitter, but yeah, not, not, I didn't direct anything. I, I um, tried to get some plays published, and we we actually started a um, we started a theater company, an independent theater company, with some friends of ours from Emerson. Um, that didn't last very long. It was it was a tough. We we produced one play, and then it all, it all kind of closed up shop. Again, I think that's sort of a testament to how tough the the theater scene in Boston. And and then I just kind of I started working on fiction. And I, I think Alexander kind of moved in that direction too. Yeah. Um, and then we we just sort of 
tried to get a few things published. We, we did get a few things published. And then uh, he started working on this. And then we just kind of focused on this. And you've known, that's Kelly McCabe that plays Nika, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So you've known her since at least 2005, because I saw in the Dramatis Personae that she played um, Brooke in Perez. She did. Oh, yeah, right. we, she, she, we met her also in a playwriting class the year after uh, Jeff and I met. Um, and she also was the person who founded the theater company that lived briefly, uh, which was in Terrabang. Right, which yeah. I think everybody who likes it was called Interobang. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I love Interobang. We I figured do. It for, for those that are not in the know, that's a um, like a digraph punctuation mark that is a question mark superimposed over an exclamation point. Yes, get it. One, one features prominently <laughs> in um, in parens. We felt it was very appropriate for a theater company. Like, we're all these sure. like, young grad student theater people being like, see, it's a question mark and an exclamation point. <laughs> yeah. I suppose that, that pushes all of my buttons, but I don't have the money to endow a theater company. Yeah. There's no rehearsal space. That's the biggest problem. And it's only gotten worse. People used to sneak into MIT because they just had open classrooms and the security was lax. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I know that sounds horrible, but it's true. That was something that like all independent theater kind of depended on to have rehearsal space. And now that's gone. They started really cracking down on it. Um, it's, it's just oh, really, sucks. it's really tough. Yeah. It's, it's harder than ever now. It's Boston's a tough town. It's a tough town here. <laughs> I'm not trying to, not trying to disparage it completely, but, um, yeah. It, sure. Real estate well, is, I mean, uh, you, can, you can detect like a, a deep ambivalence in greater Boston, you know, because it's obvious that you really deeply love this place where you live. Yeah. But it's also a place that's, like, worthy of... It's a hard place to live. Hatred. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not easy, but, um, yeah, I remember, but we love it. I remember so. talking to Rich Wentworth, who produces uh, Hadron Gospel Hour, mm-hmm. um, about the blizzard of, what was that, 2014? Oh, uh, yeah. I think that the, the sounds really right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. There's a reference uh, to it just... in episode 10, so look yeah. out for that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. cool. Although we pushed it back at least a decade. It, it happens much earlier in our show. No, I'm Oh, talking... right, because it's an alternate Boston. It's like a completely, it's like a fantasy world Boston. There's there's things that are slightly off yeah. kilter from how they are. Right. Yeah, and, and all of the things that are off kilter, we've tried to connect to things that are true and, and just, you know... Uh, bring them into the present moment in an odd way. Yeah, most of them are things that existed, but um, and just never stopped existing. Where in in the real world they did. Um, Interesting. It, it's a weird. It's Boston. So much of it is, uh, you know, there's lots of history, obviously, and it's uh, some of it's very antiquated, including some of the laws. Like there's lots of old Puritan laws um, Mm -hmm. that are just weird. Like, you could still duel on the Boston Comet if you wanted to. That's technically still on the books. And it's just like, what? Why is that there? So we thought it would be kind of fitting that there's all this stuff that just never went away. And so that just gives it a little odd, surreal flavor, but also kind of makes sense for the city. And so much of our actual history is surreal. I mean, we had a molasses flood. (laughs) That is a thing that happened. That's so strange. People died in a molasses flood in Boston. In the in the Boston in your Boston in Greater Boston, are there still exit fares on the M, uh, on the MTBA? I don't think so. 
Yeah, no, I think that's probably up to date. We certainly haven't addressed it. I kind of wish we had made something about them still using tokens. I, I love subway tokens. I miss them. It's a completely inefficient system, but uh, subway tokens have always seemed kind of mystical to me. I, I, I have a, a, a special affection for them. This leads me into a question I had about like the theme song to the show. Okay. Which, for those that are unaware, is a rendition of the song Charlie on the MTA, mm-hmm. right? Which is, would, would one of you like to tell the story of Charlie on the MTA? The song originates as a, a political campaign song, actually, um, back when uh, having exit fares on the T was a controversial issue. So what does it mean to have an exit fare? Basically, it's a distance surcharge. If you're going within the inner city, you pay to get on and then you get off when you want. But if you're going out to the suburbs, you have to pay a second time to get off the train. And that's a surcharge for having traveled further. But it's such a Boston thing to do to people. Like, people pay extra to go farther. It's the, I don't know, especially if you live farther away from the city, it's just a big F you, basically. I don't know. Yeah. So the, the plot of the song is that this guy, Charlie, gets on the train with one nickel. He pays his nickel. And once he's on the train, he realizes he didn't bring a second nickel, so he can't pay the exit fee. And he stays on the train for the rest of his life. Right. Every day, his wife comes running by the train to pass him a sandwich through the window. Uh, at no point does she ever just bring him a nickel. She only brings him a sandwich. <laughs> so it's just so thoroughly ingrained in Boston's understanding of itself. Or at least in the MBTA's this... understanding of itself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Which... So this was commissioned as a political protest song? Not a protest song, an actual politician's campaign song. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what politician. I think it was probably a gubernatorial race, but it was actually played at campaign rallies. Um, That's amazing. And and the tune is older than that. The tune was an old maritime tune, uh, the ship that never returned. And it's, you know, a ship goes Mm -hmm. out to sea and never comes back because, of course, course Boston has a lot of maritime history also. Um, and, And these were new lyrics that were written to that old tune. It doesn't make, I mean, I hate to say this and I don't, I don't necessarily mean this. Um, I hope I don't mean this about the show. Boston doesn't make any sense at all. Like logistically, <laughs> it makes absolutely no sense. Anybody who comes here and tries to get around, they're like, how can you get around? How can you do this? And um, it takes a lot of patience. It takes time. You have to spend a lot of time just navigating the streets because most of them are one way. There's no grid. It's so old. And then new stuff gets built on top of the old stuff. It's a mess, like, and you really kind of have to, you have to love it. I, I've, know, I've known people who have come out and said, you, no way, like, I'm never coming back. I hate it here. It, I can't get anywhere. I, nobody, nobody can even tell me how to get anywhere. Um, <laughs> so I guess I, I think that's pretty absurd. My experience is so much the opposite of that. Like, that was one of the reasons I came to Boston. You can get uh, around Boston. You get lost all the time. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, but I, I get lost anywhere. Boston's no different for me. But in Boston, everything's at least close enough together that I can walk where I'm going and I eventually get there. Whereas when I lived in New York, I never got where I was going. So, Alexander, I want to ask you about this piece, The Cryptozoologist, that was published in the Saturday Evening Post last May, because it ended up being reproduced pretty much exactly as written in episode one of Greater Boston as the introduction to Dimitris Tomatis. 
how long had that piece been kicking around in your head? Like, how long have you been thinking about this family prior to the publication of that? Well, the original idea was actually, I, I started out working in trying to write some flash fiction. Um, that, okay. that was my original uh, impetus was I, I just wanted to write some really short stories and see if I could sell them. Um, and then I started thinking about audio. And the original plan for the show was that every chapter should function as a standalone story um, that when grouped together added up to something larger. But, but I did imagine each piece being a complete narrative. Uh, we got away from that pretty quickly. Um, but a few of those old standalone pieces are in in the story. Um, the cryptozoologist, by the time I sold that to the Saturday Evening Post, we had already started writing Greater Boston as Greater Boston, and we knew that was going to be part of the show. Uh, but it still worked independently, and so the pieces that did, I was still shopping around with the idea that, you know, while we were still getting the show ready to air, we could maybe make a little money from selling little bits and pieces of it. Yeah. Um, and so I think I made $25. Ah. <laughs> some, some good walking around money Saturday Evening Post. Yeah. But I get to say I was in the Saturday Evening Post, which yeah. still exists. So so this experience combined with um, Third Sight Media from the show, the supernatural kind of hokey new age publishing company mm -hmm. um, leads me to wonder have either of you ever worked in publishing i worked in a form of publishing i worked in the dot coms right before the bubble burst and it was um a new media company we were producing multimedia educational products it, it was terrible it was um you know entirely <laughs> these things we made uh, that companies would spend their surplus budget on so they didn't lose their budget the next year. But it, it was a form of publishing. I was an editor. I was editing transcripts of these shows and doing research and compiling external, um, you know, resources. Um, very different from what Third Sight Media is doing, but I believed in it exactly as much. As much as, as Gemma did? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As Gemma, I mean, Gemma is very much an identification character for me, especially when, when she's still at Third Sight. Is there someone specific, and obviously you don't have to name names, that Gerald slash Panda Bear slash uh, Extinction <laughs> Event Paletti is based on? No, no, there there really isn't. I, we've uh, met, I think we've met of plenty cloth. of people who who kind of fit that sort of... Uh, persona like technically there's 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 quite a bit about him that is technically admirable like a lot of his stances you could say okay yes that's right yeah but he's just the most annoying human being on earth like he and he'll he'll ju he'll judge everyone too harshly for like you know eating meat or not recycling i mean it's it's good to recycle and if you're vegan good for you that's wonderful but like they're the type of they're the militant types that are just sort of like you're a bad person and i'm gonna let you know you're a bad person it's just like you don't have to you don't have to take it that far buddy like you know sure i, I think he's like, a what, mixture what good is that affecting right. right exactly uh i i love writing characters who are good admirable characters who are entirely insufferable <laughs> Um, and Leon is one of those too. I, I mean, I think he would be a, a, a very difficult person to be friends with, but he's absolutely an immensely good person. 
what is it about his like obsessive nature that attracted the two of you to this character as writers? For me, it really does just go back to writing the most annoying character I could that you could still love. I I sort of see I see a lot of the themes of of the show uh, as kind of like looking at again and again I see Boston as a very chaotic city and it's a city I love but there's it's it makes no sense like I said before and I also sort of mm-hmm. see it a little bit as a metaphor for just the whole world in some ways um, and, or maybe less grand the United States less grand let's just let's just go to the country Jeff let's just bring it down one notch. Um, <laughs> But because it's because there's lots of great things about it and it's very progressive, but there's lots of horrible things about it. And I'm I'm talking about the history. And I'm talking about recent mm-hmm. history. I'm talking about now. Um, you you can't. It you know I love living there. It's a great place to live. But there's there's so many problems with it still. It, and it, it's kind of like why do we have these problems? But anyway, um, I think that there's a lot of kind of people kind of trying to characters I should say, trying to organize chaos and and doing their best mm-hmm. to sort of maintain and keep the chaos at bay and organize the chaos and in some ways i feel like leon's calling might be in, in government because he'd be he'd be he'd excel at it kind of but also he'd probably be really terrible at it because there's so much disorganization and there's so much corruption and that wouldn't really be something those weren't the things that sort of drive with his character do you have plans for a second season like what 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 do you intend for greater boston uh, we've started writing the second season we're we're actually a little further behind in that than we'd like to be um, we're, we're still debating how many seasons it's going to be. It's definitely going to be, um, you know, it, it's going to have an end, uh, and, mm-hmm. and it's probably not going to run for that many seasons, but we, we've I been think... kind of privately arguing about how many it should be. <laughs> Originally we were sure. thinking th- three, um, and we thought that was a, a good solid number. And then people actually started listening to it, and we said, "Oh, um, I know people. People originally like I thought, Jeff was thinking three. I was never thinking yeah, three. That's, that's true. Yes, that's true. I was thinking more like five. So I mean, we're not okay. that far off, but sure. Do you know how the show is going to end? No, I have. No, ideas I don't. I yeah. We I'm sure we have ideas, and I think we both have a sense that there's a particular character who, when their story is resolved, then the show is over. But we haven't settled on that resolution yet. A lot of it's going to be arguments, I think. So we're 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 kind of okay. like delaying those arguments. Yeah, it's going to be sort of like no, it should be this way. No, it should be this way, and, and we're kind of like let's let's just write the second season before we get into those arguments. Not that not that we're going to sure. be like really at each other's throats, but um, they're fun arguments to have. Yeah, let's let's dig into that. What is your writing process? Uh, lots of arguing because we are okay. almost never thinking the same thing. Um, we are very, very, very different. We are not Misha and Dan at all. We're more Cecil no. and Ebert than the, those guys are. Like, we, yeah, we we're very good friends, um, but we're also very different people. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but but I think we we respect and really listen to each other well. Yeah. Um, more so than any collaboration i've ever done with anybody else um so i think that's what make it makes it work um i I value that in the collaboration i mean to me if we if we always agreed and always had the same idea then we wouldn't need each other yeah i think we complement each other well i think the way we each answered the question about leon really reflects the different uh approaches we take to the show and the different themes that that are important to us within the show because i'm very focused on um the individual and the individual character and the individual ambitions of the character 
Uh, and mm-hmm. I came in with that as as the central themes I was interested in was how an individual finds their place. Um, and Jeff came in and he was so much more interested in the bigger picture and, and the, the formation of communities and the way communities function. Yeah, that that's sure. sort of what I was really interested in about the, the whole thing as a whole um, and, and still am. I mean, I love the characters, too, but I didn't. I have to admit, I didn't. I didn't create most of the characters. Most of the characters are Alexander's. Um, in, initially, what's I, a Jeff character? Are there any like specific like Jeff Vendries and invented characters? I guess maybe Tyrell. I think. Okay. Um, uh, I, Louisa. Yeah, you did mostly. a lot more with him than I did. You also did a lot more with Louisa. I really Louisa, think of her as your character. Louisa is probably the the biggest Jeff character in the show. Um, I think I kind of took Nika at the end. Like Nika was a an Alexander character, and then she becomes a Jeff character. Yeah, um, that's definitely true. And then there's some that I think are kind of both ours. But but again, technically, like most of them were. I mean, the the way the first season was written was Alexander was writing this audio drama, and we would get together every week to talk about it. Um, I would I would show him a draft of my novel, and he would show show me this and other projects that he was working on, and we would kind of critique it. And then eventually I said, hey, maybe I should write an episode. And he, he was like, great. And I wrote an episode. And then we kind of, I wrote a couple more. And I wrote some earlier pieces. And we just started kind of, you know, working together more consistently. I think for the next season and for future seasons, we're going to do a much more kind of every other episode um, yeah. kind okay. of writing structure. It was always my plan to rope Jeff into working on the show. That was, that was I mean, from the start, I, I knew I didn't want to do it by myself uh, and I knew I wanted Jeff working on it with me, um, but it was a lot of uh, getting the ball rolling so he could see what I had in mind and, and convince him that it was something he should be working on. There, there are a bunch of different styles of radio dramas that are going on right now, and some are moving towards... Uh, and some are moving towards a, a sort of a cinematic style, and some are moving toward um, like a kind of close theatrical style and some are moving like they're toward this like cinema verite style um wooden overcoats is like a sitcom right it's like mm-hmm. a snappy tv sitcom greater boston to me feels much more like a novel than any other kind of other media of all the of all the audio dramas i've heard in the last year it feels the most explicitly and consciously literary i, I think yeah. that's fair I, I agree i think that certainly speaks to our aesthetic I, I take that as a compliment. I mean, that was sort of what we were trying to do. I mean, we were, in some ways, especially... Again, Good. I, I, didn't, I didn't mean it as a dig. No, yeah. no, 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 no. <laughs> I know. I, I, I thank you, honestly, because that's... I, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I thought nobody would listen to it, because I, you know, a lot of the audio drama we would listen to before we produced the show was so much different than what we kind of had in mind. And, there, and I, I don't mean to sort of, at all, I don't mean to bash any show and I'm not bashing any show but we don't have that kind of same hook that you know, we don't have time travel we don't have monsters there's no spaceships it's it's I mean it's it's just a weird city that's kind of all we've got um you know even 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 less of a weird city than our fair city it's just kind of yeah. weird off Boston you know <laughs> so I didn't think anybody sure. would really look at this and be like yeah let's listen to that um because it's I, I, I and because it was so literary it's not the serialized it's not really the pulpy it, it's just this long story with many characters um so i feel like comparing it to a novel is very accurate and honestly i take it as a compliment because i think that's what we were kind of setting out to do 
honestly, if we're going to be frank, we don't have the technical skills to do something that sounds cinematic. Right. You know, we, yeah, we, we had to take a different approach. We're very much novices when it comes to this. Uh, so with, with that in mind, who are some of your favorite writers? I think I'd go by the book I'd recommend to people the most and the book I've given okay. to people the most. And the book I've recommended and um, given to people the most is a, a collection of short stories by Amy Hempel um, called Reasons okay. to Live. It's and she she writes she she has a style that. that is is like no one else's. It's 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 kind of how do how do I put it? It's very very terse, very sparse, but also very lush at the same time. I can't I no no one can replicate it. Like she's she's sort of I don't know. He's a genius. I, I, after giving such a pretentious response to that question, I feel I, I also need to add that the show is tremendously influenced. Uh, by Fraggle Rock. <laughs> really? Absolutely. That I'm not being ironic at all. It is tremendously influenced by Fraggle Rock. Let's dig into that. What do you mean? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> Traveling Matt is in the show, and uh, Red and Moki got married, which should be no surprise to anyone. Um, the I mean, Fraggle Rock is very much about individuals... You might you might need to spell this out for people who aren't super <laughs> familiar with Fraggle Rock, buddy. Yeah, I, I regret to say I, I was born in the late '80s. Are there people not familiar with Fraggle Rock? I mean, I, I there might have been oh, people you're breaking who watched my heart. As, yeah, some people <laughs> didn't watch them as adults, just as children, and some people don't remember that stuff. You gotta you gotta remember I, that. I strongly recommend people go go watch Fraggle Rock. It's it's about I mean it's got both of our, our thematic influences in it insofar as it's about individuals uh, exploring their ambitions and figuring out their place and it's also about community. I mean Jim Henson's explicit goal for Fraggle Rock was world peace. Um, that's our that's so, also our goal for greater boston by the of way. course of course we're probably never gonna hit it but yeah <laughs> um and um i totally lost my train of thought uh explicit goal was world peace yes <laughs> um but the way individuals fit into society and um i had a point i was gonna make and i don't remember what my point was Shit. All, all I know is that Dimitri is basically traveling Matt. That's, that's oh, my Dimitri is totally traveling Matt. That was entirely yeah. the influence there. So if if you had to, if you each had to pick a Muppet to best represent your personality, <laughs> what what sort of? Because my, my my friend Kim says that there are there are order Muppets and there are chaos Muppets. Yeah, and that there's kind of a, a bright wow. delineation between the two. I love breaking down Muppets like that. Oh. <laughs> Which I, which Muppet would you be? I'd want to be Gonzo, but I'm probably Fozzie. So mm-hmm. I, I feel I'll, the exact same way, frankly. <laughs> yeah. You, In the show, there's this popular referendum being considered, right? mm-hmm. uh, being put forth by the mayor of the Red Line to divorce the Red Line, the subway, from the rest of the city of Boston and form its own municipality. Uh, and I remember in the wake of the, the recent Brexit vote... Uh, the two of you were feeling very strange yes. uh, about having this referendum in the show, and I want to I want to talk about that. Sure, it's it's the same feeling I have when every once in a while, early on when I was advertising the show, I would I would put like hashtag secede on Twitter or Instagram, mm-hmm. and and then immediately get followed by 
um, you know, these radical right-wing Texas groups who literally wanted mm -hmm. to secede, like Texas to secede from the United States. And I was just like, wait, no, didn't you, didn't you look at anything else? You just saw secede and you were like, yes, these are my people. Just saw like, secede. Yes, <laughs> come on. Um, yeah, I, I, it's, I, I, wish, I wish it wasn't topical in that sense because it's horrifying to me. Like I, and I know it's not exactly the same thing. It's not, it's not directly com comparable, but like if there's, uh, I don't know, it's, I should probably stop talking about it because I'll just, I'll never stop. Alexander knows that once I get going on this kind of thing, I, I don't shut up. Um, well, but it's, one thing it's that odd. I find really odd. Yeah. One thing that I find interesting is that in our world, it's very much the left wing people who are in favor of the secession. And I, and I think sure. that comes clearer in episode 10, which hasn't aired yet. Um, I'm not sure that's true. I think I, th I think it's the people who aren't thinking it through that are <laughs> in favor of it. I I mean, and that's and that echoes that echoes the Brexit as well. Yeah, no, that's true. But in episode ten, the people who are explicitly conservative are mostly opposed to the secession. I missed that. <laughs> where where did the where did the idea for this referendum originate? That's all, Alexander, because when he invented yeah. it creation of the mayor uh, he basically needed to give the mayor a, a platform and the, the whole joke was the mayor was the mayor in name only and not really a mayor of anything so he needed to give him a city so his city was going to be where he was preaching um yeah right? that's it's pretty much it it came me. from the character first you know the character started advocating it and then once the character was advocating it it made sense to chase that thread i wanted to ask you what your favorite greater Boston place names were to say. Oh, they're so annoying. Uh, oh, really? Because they all have so many, you know, silent entire syllables. I think Bill Ricca is mine. Oh, I God. Just, Bill Ricca. Bill Ricca. It's just a, such an absurd name of a, of a town. How is it spelled? Bill Ricca. Uh, <laughs> but you leave out <laughs> syllables. Sure. Yeah. Uh, Haverhill, which is spelled as Haverhill, and Worcester, which is spelled as Worcester. Meanwhile, Dorchester is actually Dorchester. It should be Duster. Right, that doesn't make any goddamn sense to me. <laughs> no, no like I said, well, welcome Worcester. to Boston, my friend. <laughs> Nothing makes sense. <laughs> I told you. I warned you. You know, I want to say one more thing, um, just going back to Greater Boston. You know, we talked sure. a little bit about how um, I kind of got the ball rolling and started the show off. Uh, I think it's really important to, to point out that as we're, we're heading into the end of the season, that the end was really defined by Jeff. Okay. Um, so if you hate it, you places... can blame me. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is not what I'm saying. Um, but, but I think the show takes a huge turn uh in in the coming episodes and a lot of that has to do with uh where jeff saw things going um and you know especially because we talked about how much influence i had at the early part i want to make sure that people realize just how much of of where we're going now is is due to jeff's ideas um and and I, I love this, the way he surprised me with where some of the characters go and, and things go mm -hmm. very different directions from what I was expecting, um, which, of course, is exactly what you want from, from a good collaboration. Yeah, I'm already worried about... I mean, I mean like, I don't know. I, 
I went on Tumblr the other night when our most recent episode came out, and like people were like, "They didn't do this, did they? They didn't." And I was like, "Oh God, like this is this nothing actually happened." I mean, I, I probably should. Oh no, it's fine if I say it. Nothing really happened. We just sort of tease this this storyline a little bit, and so based on that, I'm I'm a little worried about. <laughs> A couple of other things, although nothing really but, dire is going to happen. It's it just gets a little. You're, you're talking about people worried about Charlotte, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Which was sweet. That I, I, are generally... I assume from the monologue at the end of episode nine that she didn't get hit by the train. It's left a little vague, but she no, she's fine. Did, she's totally fine. Yeah, I mean, I I, I, just, I, I feel like I that would be the most salient thing. Than we meant to, honestly. I agree. Yeah. Well, yeah. I just figured from Mallory's like delivery, like I yeah. feel like if a woman were hit by the T, that would be like the first thing she would say. <laughs> yeah. She wouldn't right. be focused on like the dope stunt I, that was first done and then the dumb stunt that was done after. Right. I, I think you've hit exactly on what we were thinking, that Mallory's tone would make clear that Charlotte was fine. Um, yeah. But, you know, there are plenty of other writers who would write in that light tone and have someone get run over by a train. So maybe we were... Sure. Uh, <laughs> she, does, she does say that she loses sight of what happens. So I, I, I don't yes. know, maybe people are taking yeah. that line and, and emphasizing it. Uh, more than we, we thought that they would. Jeff and Alexander, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was great. Thank, Thank you, you for, for having, having us. us. Yeah, we're delighted. Yeah, come on back anytime. Anytime you want to have us, we will be back. Yeah, really, we'd be happy to. Well, friends, it's time to get that extra nickel ready for the exit fair because this episode of Radio Drama Revival is coming to an end. Let's get going with some credits. Our theme music was composed in the teeth of a whirling gale by DJ Stranger Danger of Oakland, California, who spends his non-DJ time whittling scale replicas of Faneuil Hall. Our researchers are Heather Cohen, who used to live in Boston and continually raves to me about the cannoli you can get in the North End, and Monique Boudreau, who does not, but still appreciates a good cannolo, which, yes, is the singular form. Our producer is Matthew Boudreau, who once punched Massachusetts in the face so hard it turned into Maine, which is where our executive producer, Fred Greenhound, now lives. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. Until next time, I'm telling you stories. Trust me.